0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1961, a woman went to court to watch a trial. The trial lasted just about four months, and the verdict was delivered a few months after that. The woman wasn't involved in the trial exactly, except that she had volunteered to write about it. Her name was Hannah Arendt, and in 1961, she traveled from New York to Israel to watch the prosecution of Adolf Eichmann, who had been part of Hitler's high command. And after the war, he had fled to Argentina, where he'd been hiding out for the past 15 years. Arendt was originally from Germany, and she'd experienced rising anti-Semitism as a young adult in the 1930s, which pushed her to first leave Germany and ultimately to leave Europe altogether. But when Arendt arrived in Jerusalem and she began to watch Eichmann's trial in the district court, she started to notice and then write about something kind of astonishing. And effectively...
1: Her argument was that even this monster, and certainly in terms of his acts, as as close to a monster as we're probably going to get. But when you see him in person,
0: he was a normal human being. Julia Shaw is a research associate in psychology at University College London.
1: And she used the term the banality of evil to describe it, the sort of idea that we assume that there's this this image, this picture of the bad person, the evil person we have in our minds, and that basically no one actually corresponds to that picture.
0: Shaw is the author of Evil, the Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. And she tries to understand a question that seems pretty basic, but that most of us don't usually dive into. What is evil? I think it's
1: possibly one of the most important questions that we should be asking ourselves as humans. So, I mean, what is evil and what kinds of things do we associate with the term evil? I think that's a really important thing to continue to explore. And I think it's really easy for us to almost be apathetic or at least to not engage in a critical way, in a meaningful way with really difficult issues. But to truly try and ask yourself, you know, what would make me capable of doing such a thing? Never mind what might lead to things like everything from sexual assaults to structural issues in business settings to the worst kinds of crime like genocide. You know, at what point might I be led astray? And... How can I make sure that I prevent myself from going down that path?
0: When Hannah Arendt wrote about Eichmann's trial, she noted that, quote, half a dozen psychiatrists had certified Eichmann as normal. To Arendt herself, he seemed terribly and terrifyingly normal.
1: One thing that human beings are exceptionally good at is outsourcing their morality. And so we sort of say, you know, it's not my fault that this person is being hurt. It's not my fault that whatever is happening, or even even if we are active participants, we might be saying things like, oh, but I've been ordered. I have to do this. Again, it's not me who's making this moral decision. It's somebody else who's made it, and I have to follow it. I mean, it's much easier, right? So we tend towards saying, oh, well... You know, great, you can make the tough decisions, and I'm just going to be over here either not stopping you from doing things or I'm going to participate without really activating my own brain.
0: Evil is a word that gets thrown around but that we don't talk much about. We know that sometimes people get locked up for doing bad things, but Shaw argues that saying someone is evil or a bad person is too often a conversation ender, a way for us to back away without thinking about the spectrum of human behavior and what moves people along that spectrum. The science, she says, of why people do bad things is complicated. And bad itself is a word that encompasses a lot. Plus, even when we're talking about fairly minor bad things, we tend to know ourselves better than we know anybody else. So if there's something that we once did that wasn't so great, that thing we did on our very worst day, even if it was no more than being mean to someone who cares about us or telling a lie that we really never should have, it's often easiest for us to forgive ourselves. Because I
1: understand the complexity of my behavior. I understand why I did things and the nuance of my decision making. And I can't see that for somebody else. And so I think we need to stop dividing the world into these binary categories and to accept that, yes, we all have the capacity for great harm, but we also all have the capacity for good and not to write people off just
0: because they have done some harm in their past. Shaw has previously done a lot of work on memory and how memories often, aren't quite as solid as we believe them to be. And in her study of evil, she also encourages the embrace of uncertainty. Because in this realm too, assumptions, conclusions, beliefs, they can be less solid than we might think. So, you know, the the questions around school shooters
1: often tend towards looking at or looking for mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's not enough. And it's hugely stigmatizing, as I write in, in the book as well. So I have a whole chapter on creepiness and a whole chapter on how our stereotypes and assumptions can mislead us. And that's because we have this idea that we can tell when someone is trustworthy. We can tell when someone might be evil or dangerous. But research shows that we really can't. And instead, we rely on oversimplifications and stereotypes that lead us to discount and shut out people who potentially have mental illness, people who might be from other parts of the world, and so act or look different than what we would consider to be normal. Hmm. And we fear that which we consider to be not like us. And we need to override that fear constantly, otherwise we run into issues of stigmatizing and stereotyping people with mental illness, people with disabilities and immigrants.
0: Let me ask you what science has found in terms of, you know, there's often this discussion in the criminal justice system of like whether somebody was insane when they committed an act. And then you have other people who say, well, but to kill somebody, don't you have to be a little bit crazy, right? Isn't that by by definition, the act of somebody who's not, you know, sane. What have people found? What what do we find about people who kill other people, for example?
1: So there as well, the reasons that people kill are almost always much more banal than we'd like to accept. So I uh, steal Hannah Arendt's term and actually talk about the banality of murder in the book and look at real reasons given by people who murdered other people and are now in prison. And the real reasons are things like, Somebody owed me $6 and effectively a a dispute or fight got out of control or someone disregarded or disrespected me Mm -hmm. or someone cheated on me. So that would be the sort of intimate partner angle. And basically the same, the the reasons that people murder other people are almost always based on the same kinds of human emotions that most of us experience. It's just the decision in that moment is almost always also accepted by the person and overreaction to that situation, and is just a terrible outcome. But the core reasons for why people do it are almost always the same as why we do lots of other things. And this is really, really hard to internalize. Because you're right, it feels like it should be something special. It should be something that, you know, most of us, for most of us, is luckily, out of reach is not something that is going to affect us. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not going to escalate a fight into a murder, or so we think, Until for some of us it happens, right? Hmm. Because that's the other thing is you're not evil, quote, a murderer or whatever you want to use the label as until you are. Because some of us do those things. And I'm sure that most of those people would have assumed they're not capable of it either and immediately live to regret it. So I, I think effectively there is no component there's no mystical thing that leads people to do terrible things and we need to start looking much closer to home and i think that's that's what's scary
0: and what people are often unwilling to do well so when scientists look at people's brains who have murdered people you know you talked about some of the some of the causes most people who are cheated on most people from whom a few dollars is stolen like they don't kill anybody so is there something different about the person who, well, does, you know, or the person who's slighted and they do do something that's really, really violent when most people who are slighted, they might be angry. They might, I don't know, send a mean text or give somebody the cold shoulder, or whatever it is, but they don't like resort to violence. True. And that's
1: partly because of, I mean, it's a mix of lots of things, some of which are social structures, some of which are, you know, socioeconomic status and make, you know, you actually having enough to make good decisions in terms of food, in terms of comforts, in terms of basic safety. And not everyone has those. And so those pose risk factors for some people. But you're right that there is some science, there's some neuroscience in particular that shows that the brain, certainly of psychopathic, murderers look different than the brains of non-psychopathic murderers, which probably look a bit different from the brains of non-murderers. So there's there's some research in particular on psychopathic murderers, which shows that effectively there's a lack in the part of the brain that's responsible for empathy and that the emotion of sort of feeling sad when somebody else is sad, hmm. which makes it easier to hurt people. Because if Other people's suffering doesn't affect you in the Mm -hmm. way that it affects most people. It's not going to inhibit you in quite the same way as it would most people. Hmm. And then the other piece of that is it's not just that you don't feel bad about the situation. It's also that people who make these kinds of decisions are more likely to be, well, inhibited in their decision making. So effectively, the prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain that's responsible for higher order thinking and for good planning is also working differently.
0: You're listening to innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Julia Shaw, the author of Evil: The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. um you write about how we all probably have dark desires, you know where we're like I you know whether it's kind of like I wish I could hit that car in front of me, I'm so angry or you know most people don't act on those things. I guess I wonder, well, two things. One is, how does that separate us from people who do? And then, like, what stops some people and doesn't stop other people?
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, the, what you're talking about is
1: is close to the murder fantasies research that I talk about in the right, book, right. where I talk about research where participants were asked if they'd ever had a murder fantasy. And the majority of people in two different studies said yes. And Of those people, the most common targets were, you know, your boss was a classic target, you know, having a bad day at work, maybe picturing your boss sort of maybe pushing him out the window or her... (laughs) I mean, there's lots of different versions of this. It can also be step-parents is another one. Uh, It could be sort of people who we're close to in various ways. But murder fantasies don't mean that we actually want to murder people. And this is, I think, actually quite comforting for a lot of people. Because a lot of people... So now that I've been going around with the book, I often ask people if they've ever had a murder fantasy. And it's really funny to see people's reaction on the spot. Because the intuitive reaction just like to... Basically, every topic in the book is I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. No, obvi- of course not. But then they think about it for a second and they go, Well, you know, I, I had a, my baby was screaming really loudly one night. <laughs> you know, and they'll give this sort of situation. They go, That sounds a lot like a murder fantasy. And people are almost always ashamed of these moments, as is totally understandable, right? You have this dark thought and you right. go, Oh my God, am I capable of this? Why am I having this thought? Right. And the answer is that for some of these things, they're so common that probably they're actually, they don't seem to be a risk factor, certainly, because of, you know, so many people having murder fantasies, almost none of them are going on to murder. So Mm -hmm. that's not, certainly not a causal link. And perhaps, and this is where some evolutionary psychologists argue, that perhaps they're actually adaptive. So running through scenarios in your head might make you more prepared to understand the real consequences that you might face if you go through with an act, and then to make a better decision in the real world and say, well, I don't want those outcomes, those outcomes are terrible, and to then not engage in that behavior. So it might actually be that these kinds of and this is why I'm so keen on hypothetical situations and thought experiments is that I think going through these things in your head are a really effective way of at least playing through that situation and probably making better decisions in, in reality. So, uh, but yeah, the murder fantasies, I, I think it's amazing. I think a lot of us feel alone with our dark thoughts until we realize how common they are. And, and I think it can be quite soothing to feel like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person with these horrible, horrible ideas.
0: Doing all this research on evil must have made you think differently about the criminal justice system because you know if you're if if one of the, you know, one of the things you're arguing is that maybe people should not be known any of us by the worst day we've ever had, by the worst thing we've ever done, and that that's how people know about us all the time. And and for most of us, that's not how people know about us. But for some people, it it is, right? Especially if you get locked up for it, that's pretty defining. Has this made you think differently about, you know, people and being incarcerated and how we put people on trial and that sort of thing? I think it's reinforced my views
1: around issues I have with how we dehumanize others. And certainly the prison system can contribute to dehumanizing others. So, I mean, the concept, I mean, if you you were on an alien planet (laughs) and you arrive and you notice that some of the aliens are putting other aliens in cages because of a decision they made once, and sometimes they're in cages forever, for as long as they live, I feel like we'd look at that and go, that's a really bizarre system. And that seems really problematic. And so I think if we look at ourselves and we go, you know, we're literally people putting human beings in cages, which is what we do with animals, to protect ourselves from what we think is a dangerous human being or for what we consider justice, which is also this nebulous concept, I think that we... Need to remember if we are going to engage in that kind of behavior, which probably sometimes you know is warranted. I mean, justice is an important concept. Well, exactly you have to have, have a line, it.
0: you have to have a line somewhere, right? I mean, you might say, "Well, this is not you worth too. doing," uh, you know, trying somebody for, but this thing is, and that line ha- has to be somewhere, or you try nobody for anything, I guess. Well, it's not about trying people. I think that a just system in terms of a court
1: system is really important. So trying to establish what harm has been done, Mm -hmm. uh, who's been implicated, whether there need to be consequences for actions, because I think that that part is crucial. The question is, what do we do next? Right? Uh Do we just put people in cages? Or do we do something else with them? And who do we put in cages? And who do we not? But if we go... Sort of Beyond that, I guess what I worry about is that I worry that we use this as an opportunity to dehumanize people and write them off, rather than saying, how can we rehabilitate and reintegrate this individual and help them act in a more pro-social way? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the, the, the problem is that people who think they're fighting what they think is evil or evil forces they think they're fighting on the side of the gods. They think they're fighting on the side of the good. And if you think you're fighting monsters, you can justify basically anything that you think will help you achieve, whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And so that's where we get into issues of torture. That's where we get into issues of potentially even, uh, I mean, uh, certainly the death penalty. That's where we get into issues if we go into more extreme situations of, of genocide and wiping out entire groups of human beings. When we feel like we're justified, in our opinion, and they are evil. And so that is what scares me about some of our approaches to how we deal with offenders, is that we forget the human being who's there, we forget the complexity of their decision-making, and we we justify all kinds of terrible behavior and, and effectively non-human treatment of a group of individuals who I think desperately need more attention and desperately, and certainly should be given a chance to reintegrate.
0: Hmm. Julia Shaw is a research associate in psychology at University College London. She's the author of Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about the banality of evil, the term that Hannah Arendt coined, we'll have a link to the original article about Adolf Eichmann in which she introduces the concept. That'll be on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Isil Kibbe, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help from Hannah Ubele and Nadia Lewis. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.